some of the women who have read the book said, wow, they, you know, I want to be this kind of woman. You know, they make me feel like things are possible. And that's why we need to read them. We need to hear from what happened in the past so we know what's, you know, possible in, in the future. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today we'll go back in time to hear the stories of several women who have become heroes of the faith. Author Jamie Janos will tell us their stories. I'm glad you're listening. Each week at this time, we have the opportunity to tell people stories of how Christ has impacted their life through spiritual transformation and service to His kingdom. Last week, we heard the story of Car Crazy's Barry McGuire and his passion for the gospel, and you can still hear that program and others online at FirstPersonInterview.com. Today's guest, Jamie Janos, is the author of When Others Shuddered, Eight Women Who Refused to Give Up. I found Jamie's accounts of these women to be a challenge to those of us who serve Christ today, and they have much to teach us about courage and risk-taking. Jamie and I met in the studios of Moody Radio in Chicago, and we began talking about why it is that we don't know the stories of these women as well as we know the stories of men. I have a great many um, women of faith I admire, but they do tend to be personal women, women I know in my own life, and not as often women of history. Um, The ones I know historically are a handful. And so I did. I set out to discover a few women that maybe not as much was written about, but yet they played a very substantial and long-lasting role. Um, Their effects of what they did are still evident today. Yeah. As I read these profiles that you've written about in your book, they're very dramatic stories. Yes. They're wonderful stories that, you know, again, I knew very little about, and I suspect most people don't know these stories. Are Are they lost to time? How did we lose track of them? Well, it was interesting. Um, Several of the women wrote autobiographies, but they weren't bestsellers. And very often their names, if you find them in history, are mentioned in a sentence or two. It just wasn't um, typical of the time, that late 1800s, early 1900s, that women were noted for what they were doing. They tended to be behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so um, you didn't always see them in the spotlight as much as perhaps their husbands or the men they worked alongside. Yeah. Well, let's take Fanny Crosby, for example. If you were to ask me, and I suspect this is true most people, what do you know about Fanny Crosby? I'd say, well, she wrote a lot of hymns that we've sung through the years, and she was blind. Uh, That's what I know about Fanny Crosby. But there's so much more that you've dug through the files, and you've found out about this amazing woman. She is amazing, and she also wrote about herself. All I knew about her was really exactly what you said, that she played hymns. My dad was a a piano player at our church, and I sang her hymns from when I was a very young girl. She wrote hundreds and hundreds of hymns, so many that she had to take a pseudonym, uh, many pseudonyms, because they were afraid people would get tired of seeing her name. I didn't Um, know that. Yeah. (laughs) But she was blind from infancy. It was the result of a mistake a doctor made in trying to treat an infection. Um, But she had this really positive spirit and faith in God and belief that she could do much more than what people thought. So she went on to pursue education. She left for New York at a young age to in this kind of experimental school for blind children um, and really kind of grew up there. Yeah, which probably wasn't even ordinary in her time no. for that to happen for a woman right. to receive that kind of education. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, women getting education at all was brand new, and certainly um, schools like this for the blind were brand new. And her mom had to send her away to the big city, you know, as a young girl and a blind girl. Um, I was asking someone, they didn't even use canes at that time. Um, blind people were totally dependent on holding on to someone to get around. 
So she had no freedom at all in that regard. Where did you go to find these stories about people like Fanny Crosby? Well, I dig. One thing would lead to another. And like I said, I was blessed that many of them did write autobiographies. Um, And so I was able to look at those. And now with the Internet, you can actually go on and read some of these and see the original um, manuscripts, which is exciting, Mm -hmm. you know, to hear their own words. Well, I won't ask you more about Fanny Crosby because it's in the book, and I want listeners to get the book and and to read uh, these stories for themselves. But who are some of the other women? Now, how many do you uh, tell their stories in this book? I have eight women, and they were all kind of framed around that turn-of-the-century time period. And why that time period? Well, I began looking at urban Chicago, um, where I work at Moody Bible Institute, and I was interested. Moody was founded in 1886, Um, And also um, the Chicago Fire was right around that time, just earlier. And then right afterward was the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. So a lot was happening in Chicago at that time. And I was curious to know what the role of women was like and what they were doing on behalf of the church. So you were centering on Chicago, not necessarily Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, but... The name D.L. Moody keeps popping up in this book, I noticed. It does. He was this big mover and shaker at the time. So he was around, and he was coming alongside a lot of different ministries. And so you do see his name popping up continuously. I I was kind of amused by it because it would be mentioned like he was a family friend. He was over for breakfast, or he was at their table. And I thought, (laughs) wow, there he is again. So um, he was um, coming alongside, and he was a champion of women at that time. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Emma Dreyer is written about in your book, and mm-hmm. we know about Emma a little bit more about her because of the biographies of Moody and yes. the part that she played in prodding him and encouraging him to start Moody Bible Institute. But mm-hmm. that's an illustration of the fact that behind every good man is a is a woman, right? Exactly. <laughs> they even had to have a little bit of argumentation in there. Um, she was feisty. So, yeah, you you don't always hear that side of the story. So uh-huh. those are the stories that intrigued me a bit. Again, I want people to read that part of the book, mm-hmm. but what did she do? What, why did Moody need to be pushed by Emma Dreyer? Well, she was a school teacher by trade and very, um, a little bit rigid, some people said. She was an organizer, meticulous, detailed. Moody was a big picture guy. You know, he was out running around. He was evangelizing in one city while he was starting a school in another. And um, so she was left behind in Chicago doing the work while he was out advancing the gospel. All good things. Um, But when time came for him to come back, he decided maybe he wouldn't do it. Um, that maybe Chicago wasn't a good idea after all, which infuriated Emma. So she um, she <laughs> confronted him very boldly, um, almost to the point of them shutting down their relationship. Huh. Um, but without that prodding, I think Chicago might not have happened. The Moody yeah. Bible Institute might not be here. Did you develop a friendship with these women as you wrote about them? I mean, I, I, I can see the look on your yeah. face right now as you talk about them. I did. I really felt like um, that was one of my goals was to get to know them as women and not just as historical facts. I wanted to know the the things that um, drive women's lives, their, you know, their relationships with their loved ones, their husbands, their children, their illnesses, their weakness. Um, I wanted those things in the book and not just the facts. So I did. I fell in love with each one. Yeah. You mentioned weakness. I noticed that's another thread that runs through many of these stories, not necessarily all of them, but some of them overcame great weakness and ill health uh, to accomplish great things. How do you account for that? Yeah. um, At a time when medicine wasn't nearly what it is now. Yeah, very often their illnesses were life-threatening. 
um, and certainly um, long-lasting. I know Nettie McCormick, who is a very wealthy philanthropist, lost her hearing for a great number of years and carried one of those little horns that she would hold up to help her hear people. Hmm. Um, But it didn't seem to stop them, and I think that was encouraging to me to know that yeah, they weren't superheroes. These weren't women that just could conquer all without a flinch. They had difficult times. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that that is good to know because we, too, face those things. You mentioned your friend Nettie. Nettie mm-hmm. McCormick was married to Cyrus, yes. the inventor of the, the Reaper. Reaper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they became very rich because of that. Exactly. He was wealthy to begin with and became only wealthier. Um, he was 25 years older than her. Um, when they married. And so she then became a young widow as well, and a very, very wealthy young widow um, involved in the business, but believed that money was not an end of itself and really was determined to see it spent for God and to see it spent well. Didn't I read that you discovered she was among the richest women in the city of Chicago? She was. She was. At one time, they called her the wealthiest woman of Chicago. And some of the buildings that they owned are still here today. And of course, their legacy is all over Chicago. But her legacy, again, is a spiritual legacy. Exactly. Because? Because she really believed um, that God's work was more important. Um, There were even times when, you know, and she had mansions, she had very expensive homes, but there was a scene that I found where she was fingering curtains and they wanted her to replace them in their mansion. And she said, you know, God's, there's something else we could do with this money. You know, she constantly felt like money is power, yes, but it's also in God's hands. Mm -hmm. And so she left an imprint of faith um, internationally from that money. That's the other thing about these profiles you've written about is you've got Nettie McCormick, who was so rich, and you've got others who were, they had practically nothing. Exactly. And yet they're still notable and remembered for what they accomplished for God. Right. It, you know, I was looking at women of great diversity. So I had women who were very, very wealthy, very, very poor. I had women that were happy in love and women who were not so lucky in love, mm-hmm. childless, mm-hmm. mothers. Um, yeah, who and, was single in this group? Yeah, Emma Dreyer was single. She never married. Most of them were married, I believe. Evangeline Booth was also single and very committed to being single. Mm-hmm. She was um, the daughter of the founders of the Salvation Army, decided at a young age, even though she had multiple proposals with her father, that she was better off single because she could do more work. And she that just spoke of Evangeline. She was very dramatic. Um, very how, determined. How so? What What did you find about her? She would go and act out plays as a young girl. And one time she wanted to reach the poor children in London and growing up. And so she set up a doll hospital where she would have little children bring their dolls to be fixed. And she would preach to them while they were there. So she she felt like she could use all these dramatic ways and very kind of loud, crazy ways sometimes to bring people to God. Mm-hmm. What struck you as the, the thing that ties all these women together? Well, my title is, you know, When Others Shuddered, Eight Women Who Refused to Give Up. And, and that, was the, that was really the pervasive link at the beginning. These were women who went into difficult situations very often, um, but they refused to let that stop them and stop God's leading in their life. So all the way through, I saw that where they could have stopped. They could have just said, you know, that's enough. I've done enough. But they didn't. And so they kept following more stories of women who refuse to give up as we talk with Jamie Janos today on First Person. Next time, you'll meet a man who is in the fight to rescue young women from human trafficking through what is known as Stella's House. I remember talking out loud to God one day and I said, God, I promise you this. 
As long as you give me strength, I will make the devil sorry he ever laid a finger on Stella. And my, my dream, I want to build Stella's houses all over the world. Philip Cameron of Stella's House tells Stella's story and more next time on First Person. My guest on First Person is Jamie Janos, and she's the author of When Others Shuddered, Eight Women Who Refused to Give Up. It's published by Moody. Jamie and I have known each other for a number of years, working together at Moody Bible Institute, where I served for many years, and you still serve at Mm -hmm. Moody, uh, both adjunct professor and uh, in another department as well. Yes. I'm um, Currently, I'm doing writing for Moody, telling the stories to donors and friends. So I love this kind of thing. It's going to be great fun. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's talk more about the women that you write about in your book. And again, thanks for drawing us into their stories. It's amazing. I, I love history. Mm-hmm. I love personalities to mm-hmm. learn from people. And so you kind of bring this all together. Let's talk about Virginia Asher for a moment. Who is Virginia Asher? I, I do not know this name. She's not really all that well known. In fact, I didn't even... Even find I don't think any books on her at all. Um, she was an early, early student at Moody Bible Institute. Um, she attended Moody's church. Grew up in Chicago. Um, the daughter of immigrants. And again, this is late eighteen late eighteen hundreds, okay. right? And um, found found the Lord and really, really wanted to serve Him as a young girl. So she was involved in evangelistic outreaches, even at the World's Fair. Um, she was involved in a team of women who stood underneath the first Ferris wheel that was built for the World's Fair and handed out gospel tracts. Okay. So that was part of her outreach at the time. But as she got a little bit older and got some more experience and married, um, she became involved in the brothel district in Chicago, reaching out to what were termed fallen women, mm-hmm. women who worked in that trade. Um, Chicago was notorious for this at the time. The World's Fair had brought all kinds of people into Chicago. You know, the population was growing like crazy. read The Devil in the White City, and you'll know what we're talking about, uh, how concurrent with the World's Fair was this serial killer who was preying on women like that. Exactly. They would arrive with their suitcases looking for work, looking for opportunity, and often were met by people, the wrong types of people. Um, the other book, Sin in the Second City, talks about the brothel district and about the church on the other side that was trying to stop human trafficking that was happening. Hmm. Um, we think of that as a new issue. I, I know. You say human trafficking. Mm-hmm. We think of our our day now, and, and we're talking here about the late 1800s. Exactly. This is amazing. And it was a huge issue. And these these women, you know, in, in today's technology, women are able to, you know, have cell phones to call home or email. There was no way women could contact. So hmm. once they'd left home... They disappeared. Yeah, they disappeared off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but Virginia, an interesting thing, you know, she's this kind of quiet, Bible-dedicated Christian worker, and yet I see her mentioned as a friend to the brothel owners. So they, she was called in often to pray with the women and to minister to them and to just be there for them. And she was known for her kind heart hmm. and um, the way she loved them. Hmm. And and that was rare because, you know, many women would not have gone into those areas of town right, at all. right. 
Yeah, and I think of recent graduates of Moody Bible Institute and other schools that move into the inner cities and do much the same thing today. And th- this mm-hmm. has got to be their, their predecessor, their hero. It is, it is. Even though we don't know her name. I know. And then she started, you know, out of that ministry, she started something to shop girls, which were um, factory girls at the time, industrial workers. And so she would offer lunches and Bible studies in the cities. Many of them were too poor to bring lunches, so they would come for a simple sandwich and Bible studies. And those grew into what was called business councils. And she started Virginia Asher's um, Business Women's Councils that grew up all over the United States. So they spread, yeah, from one city to the next. And by the time she died, there were thousands of these councils (laughs) where women were meeting for Bible study. We're so clever today. Yeah. (laughs) And here all these things were being done. I know. I know. That was one thing that astounded me. I thought, wow, they were doing a lot of this brave work then, you know, when I didn't picture women doing that type of thing. Yeah. All right, we have time to talk about one more woman that you write about in your book, and it's one of my favorite, Mary McLeod Bethune. Mm -hmm. Uh, She figures very prominently whenever you go to Washington, D.C., her name is is prominent there in the historical markers. And tell me who she is, or was. Well, she um, also has a college, Bethune-Cookman College University that's in Daytona Beach, Florida. Her home is there still. You can walk through it and see it. But yeah, she was born um, the child of slaves. And so born into very poor, impoverished circumstances, um, gifted in education by a Quaker woman who came to her town and wanted to send um, an African-American child to school. Wasn't she the only one of her siblings that got to go to school? The only one. Her mom thought there was something special about her. She was outspoken. She wanted more. um, And she sensed that. So she sent Mary away to school and then another school and then eventually to Chicago to Moody. Um, where she graduated wanting to be a missionary. Um, Those dreams did not work out. They were dashed for her. She was turned down by a missions agency. She wanted to go to Africa. She wanted to go to Africa more than anything. As an African-American woman who grew up just outside of slavery, her parents had been slaves, she wanted to go to Africa. And that had to be devastating when she was turned down. She was turned down. And and everybody thinks, you know, there's uh, the paperwork on it is not clear, but everybody assumes this was a racial... Um, issue at the mm-hmm. time. You know, of course, discrimination was thick at, at that point. And so she went south instead. She resolved in her heart that wasn't going to stop her. So she went to Florida and started a little tiny school to teach other girls like herself how to read and write. Okay. So um, this is after her Moody education. After Moody. She goes to Florida. She sets up a school. Mm-hmm. Did she have benefactors? How did she pay for that? She scraped and got things out of trash bins and set up this little tiny um, hut. She paid down on a lot with hardly any money. And she went up to, she would go up to very wealthy people and ask them to support her. And one man came back um, to her. She had asked him to be a trustee. So he came to visit her school, which was really a hut with some crates in it. And he said, where is the school you want me to be the trustee of? And she said, it's here. It's in my heart. (laughs) Um, And he was floored. So he signed a check. So people believed in her because she had great vision, Mm -hmm. Um, not because they could see evidence of it very Mm -hmm. often. Why is it that we've lost these stories? Why don't we know? I mean, I appreciate you doing what you've done here and turned a spotlight on them. But how, how is it that we've lost them? Well, I think the stories are there. Um, They sometimes are skipped over a little bit um, or told very briefly. And maybe it's because we just haven't realized that we need them so much. Um, 
But I've been encouraged, you know, some of the women who have read the book said, wow, they, you know, I want to be this kind of woman. You know, Mm -hmm. they make me feel like things are possible. Mm -hmm. And that's why we need to read them. We need to hear from what happened in the past so we know what's, you know, possible in in the future. You draw conclusions from the lives of these eight women. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the the things that you've learned that uh, you want to pass on to readers. One of the biggest takeaways for me was that these were women of prayer, Um, They really believed that God could work through them and that God could supply their needs. Um, It was kind of an admonition to me to be more of a woman of prayer and to remember to take my needs to God all the time and to believe that he can work in my life. Um, That's something I tend to forget, Mm -hmm. and I'll confide in other people first. It's not limited to women, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. So that was a big reminder. Um, The fact that they all experienced hardship, that that this is a part of our life. It's not unusual. Um, If you, you know, on my Facebook feed every day, I read of friends who are going through tough times. And I've had, my family has gone through tough times, and yet God has been consistent. And so I think to know that you aren't alone if you go through hardship, but that God can still use you even through difficult circumstances. Mm-hmm. And they faced opposition, significant opposition, yes. not just from society, but from, from all points, didn't they? Right, right. Sometimes the opposition came from very nearby, from family or from even the church and, and um, the Christian society. Um, but when you want to do great things, sometimes you're going to ruffle some feathers, um, like Emma Dreyer did or yeah. um, Bethune, where she faced um, people who did not want her to give African Americans opportunities. Right. Um, so I think that you have to do what you know in your heart is right. And I'm trying to imagine Virginia Asher walking into a brothel district mm-hmm. in Chicago and uh, what courage that took. Right. Because what would people think? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, what yeah. would people think if I go there? It's a nice and church I'm lady like people? you doing here. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to obviously report back. But yet she she went anyway. And um, that reward is evident. Mm-hmm. And then you write that they found their value in Christ. They knew mm-hmm. who they were in Christ. Boy, is that a lesson for today? Right. I think, you know, especially as I looked at the women who were born slaves, I was reminded that you might look at yourself and think that, you know, I was born in poverty. I, I'm not worth much. I'm not worth much to society or to God. Or the women who went through divorce or um, were abandoned or childless, um, the same thing. You know, you can put your value in those things, and yet it's not really meant to be found there, that God valued them beyond that mm-hmm. for who they were. What changed did this work in you when you found out what these women did and how they uh, fulfilled their dreams through Christ? Mm, it, it was really an emotional response for me. I mean, I would be reading sometimes their stories and it would bring me to tears, you know, realizing the hardship that that they had gone through and yet were faithful. So it was a call for me personally, you know, to be faithful in everything and to not look at what I can't do in life, but to look at what I have been given to do, each opportunity each person I interact with online, each neighbor I talk to. But what are those opportunities and how can God use me today? And so that was my challenge, really, is to pull back and to focus on that. Well, there were other women who are profiled in Jamie's book we didn't have time to talk about today. But you'll find more information about her book when others shuddered at firstpersoninterview.com. Our guest has been the author, Jamie Janos. These first-person conversations take place each week here, both on radio and online. Our website is firstpersoninterview.com, and that can be an introduction to a full archive of past programs for you to listen to at your convenience. 
You can also like us on Facebook and leave comments online at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. That's facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, you'll meet Philip Cameron, originally from Scotland, who has a big heart to help orphan girls in Moldova who might otherwise end up as victims of sexual trafficking. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us again for First Person. First Person.